you have to really be at ground level. You have to really sort of enter people's houses and, you know, see their lives close up and, and get out of the office and sort of, you know, rub elbows with people. And Hello and welcome to another edition of CDT ChinaCast, a production of ChinaDigitalTimes.net. I'm Josh Chin. Howard French has worked overseas for the New York Times since 1990. He did stints for the Times in West Africa, Southern and Central America, the Caribbean, and Japan. As the Times features writer based in Shanghai, he's had the good fortune to travel to and report on nearly every corner of China. He recently came to the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism as a visiting lecturer. I took the opportunity to sit down with him for a ChinaCast foreign correspondence series interview and asked him to talk about what it's like for him to work in China, starting with his move from Tokyo to Shanghai. It's a very strange place to arrive in China from because the two countries have a long relationship and there's a very strong cultural link between the two of them um, uh, that goes back a very long time. The most obvious element of this, of course, is you know the borrowings that China, Japan has made from China in terms of, of writing, in terms of religion, in terms of various other philosophical things and lifestyle issues. Having said that, they are really dramatically different places and, and it comes across almost in every aspect of, daily, of, of life, you know, just speech style, uh, in human interaction, protocol, uh, humor, business culture, politics. I mean, everything is different in the two countries. Can you think of uh, one experience you had when you arrived in China that in, encapsulated this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I studied Japanese very seriously and, and, and had a tutor, although my Japanese was pretty good by my sort of second year or so. I kept studying very diligently all the way down to the end. And I had a teacher who was very formal and, and she would sit bolt up right in my living room and and give me these, you know, incredibly formal lessons about the fine points of Japanese. And I wanted to learn how to, how the kids talk, how to, you know, so how do I get down and dirty in the street with Japanese youth? And um, she would have none of it. She'd say, you're the New York Times representative in Japan, and you've got to be elegant. And, and so she, she would always give me these incredibly sophisticated ways of saying it, things, which is actually how, you know, Japanese society at a certain level really functions. So she wasn't wrong to do that. And so I get to China, and I'm probably been there a week or so, and I had been studying. I studied a little Chinese before I arrived and then had was intensive in intensive language training in Shanghai before I started writing. So I'm determined to make use of, of, of this new language. And so I go to a restaurant and I, I, I get myself a seat and the waitress walks up to me and she says, Hushima, which basically means... I think she even dropped the word you. Ni shema or ni shema means you drink what? I think she just said drink what? Yeah, And, you know, I was at a still at a beginner's level of Chinese, but I could I got those two words and their impact just in their just immediacy and brusqueness. And she as I, I really don't mean to suggest she was being rude, but just the sort of force of this sort of immediate expression hit me right between the eyes, and I just sort of said, whoa, so here's, here's, here's what's different here. You know, this is a society that's wasting no time on, on, on niceties and on, on, on protocol. It's right down to business, and that's really a good, for me, a very good metaphor of just the way China, China functions on many levels. So you, you actually cover a pretty wide range of stories. I mean, you do... Uh Internet, you, you cover the internet, you cover business, you, you travel all over the place. I mean, how, at the New York Times, I mean, there are, there are a few of you there. How do you guys divide up the stories? Do you sort of all come up with this on your own? or um, We have a very informal system. There's no territorial, ter- territorial division between us. You know, the, we, we're all allowed to go all over the country. Um, and I've reported stories in Beijing and the Shanghai people, and the Beijing people have reported stories in Shanghai. And so we, we basically have a kind of... <clears throat> 
a conference system in our email where we post our intentions and and that's how we avoid stepping on each other's feet. Um, they are being in Beijing tend to do all of the the national political news, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, Joe Khan, who's the uh, Beijing bureau chief, is also the most uh, senior sort of. He, he he's been in China for a long time, and he knows China very intimately, and and so certain things just fall to him in the natural course of things. So, what what is your favorite type of story to do of, of all these? I mean, I have a general category, and then I can get a little more specific. General category is really, I mean, I not being in the in the capital, I'm not for the most part, I'm not concerned with breaking news stories. Uh, there's some exceptions to that, and but generally speaking, I'm doing feature writing, and I like that, uh, having done national political reporting in a lot of other places. Uh, it's nice to be a feature writer full-time. Um, and so to do good feature writing, the kind of feature writing I like, I think you have to you have to really be at ground level. You have to really sort of enter people's houses and, you know, see their lives close up and, and get out of the office and sort of, you know, rub elbows with people. And, you know, Robert, I'm sorry, um, uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson, the famous photographer, once said, that if you're not taking good pictures, it's because you're not close enough to your subject. Right. I think the same thing applies to feature writing. That if you, you know, if your features aren't working, it's because you really didn't get. When I say close enough, I mean into the into the lives of the people that you're you're, you're writing about. And beyond that, I, I you know, China's a big country, and it's re- really varied from one region to the other. And and that's really pleasing to sort of get out and. I mean, I love the extremities of the country. I love Yunnan. I love Xinjiang. I don't get to go to Tibet as as much, uh, certainly not, uh, you know, with the kind of freedom that I would like, but I've been there. Um, these parts of the country are just great. I mean, they're, first of all, each of them in itself is huge. And it's kind of like this wild sort of open, uh, almost un- unsettled, not literally, but where things don't yet seem to have sort of completely gelled type, type areas. And I like that. So do you have, I mean, do you have a, a, a sort of most uh, memorable experience reporting or is there something, is there something in your mind that sort of encapsulates reporting in China for you? Uh, I'm not a big fan of most questions because, right. you know, um, th- you know, if you're having a rich experience, it becomes very difficult to pin it down to one or two things. In China, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this, ex- this trip to Kashgar that I took uh, in November was one of the great trips of, of you know, I've, I'm a very well-traveled guy. This was one of the great places to go. I mean, a real highlight of my travel experience all the way. You know, Kashgar is the furthest west uh, city in China. And it's, you know, almost on the on the Kazakhstan border. And and it's it's just this incredible crossroads, to, to use a cliche, where you're, you're running into people who look like they could be from you know, any continent. You know, I just spent a lot of time wandering into little mosques and getting to know people, like real ordinary people. And just the street life of the place was amazing. Um, But then as soon as I stopped to think, okay, so this was my favorite travel experience, right away, three or four others popped into mind. Several of them in in Xinjiang. I mean, Xinjiang's just this extraordinary place. I mean, not so often reported on, but where life is just really rich and really different from what your picture, most people's picture of China is. Um, so, when you're back in when you're when you're in Shanghai, when you're when you're not reporting, and doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of time when you're not reporting, but I mean, when you're in Shanghai, what, what do you what do you do? What do you do with your free time? Well, I don't have a lot of free time. I mean, I, I write a column for the Herald Tribune, which so I have to always have a column idea, sort of in germination, and and very often I'm in in Shanghai writing that. So that that's sort of a fixed thing on my calendar. And what's what I typically do is I go off on one of these trips, and if I, particularly if it's to a faraway place. 
I try to report two or three stories. Uh, and, and I tend, since they're pure features, I tend not to write them from out on the road. I tend to sort of report full out, you know, gather as much color, as much quotes, as much information as I can, and then come back to Shanghai and sort of recover. Because a lot of the, sometimes this travels really, you know, I mean, it, it it's taxing. So you recover for a couple of days. I, I run my office, so I've got to sort of oversee stuff in the office. And and after 48 hours or so of re- pseudo-recovery, then you, you, you start processing this and you, you start writing the articles. I don't know. In terms of what I do in Shanghai otherwise, I, I the, the little free time I have is spent really photographing. I'm, I'm a passionate amateur photographer and I'm, I'm trying to do a book about Shanghai, the disappearing old neighborhoods of the city. So, you know, I spend a lot of time on the weekends uh, out there just sort of wandering neighborhoods with my cameras and, and documenting things. So uh, a little bit of a less serious question. Eye addiction. Do, do you have it? And uh, what's going to happen when you, uh, when you have to move back to New York and can't afford one anymore? Um, well, you know, my children are grown. Uh, my second son's about to go off to college. So life becomes a little, little simpler. You know, um, I've, I've, it's, there's a bigger question involved. I've lived overseas most of my adult life. And, uh, you know, there have been certain niceties like that that have accompanied me in each of these places where I've had a you know the cost of living is is radically cheaper, and they're you know helpers and drivers and cooks and this and that, and that's been great to have. Um, and now I don't have you know children in the nest anymore, so it becomes I think less of a factor. Um, you know, it'd be great to have an IE in New York too eventually, but uh, I'm not sure, as you said, I can afford it. I'm in the wrong industry. There are, there are a tremendous amount of journalists walking around with maids in Manhattan. Um, so a last last question. Uh, I'll let you go. This is a this is sort of the the China Digital Times uh, podcast special. If you uh, had one opportunity to uh, to interview Hu Jintao, what what question would you ask him? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, there's so many questions to ask Hu Jintao, and and no one gets to ask him questions. Right. So right, well, how about so, give me give me three? What three questions? Okay. Um, wh- Chinese, China's leaders often invoke eventual democratization um, and they often speak about the time not being right. And so the, there's this projection into some distant future uh, that is that makes this all theoretical. Um, what are the conditions that actually have to be realized before Chinese people are ready in his view or in their view for democracy? The second question is, can any Chinese leader actually describe this as uh, – can decide that the time is right under their own rule because, uh, you know, that by almost perforce means surrender of power or surrender of some measure of power. Um, I'd like to ask about, um, you know, um, his relationship to, to the past, to history. You know, he grew up uh, in a very different era in China and he was – you know, big in the Communist Youth League. And, um, you know, he uh, praises Mao uh, on occasion, and he's even praised um, uh, the North Korean leadership on occasion as having gotten its ideology right. I'd like to ask him what it is about the the ideology of that era that is right or that is, you know, he's proud of or, or, or happy with or would like to defend and why. Um, you know, I'd like to hear... It would be nice to hear China's leaders, not just Hu Jintao, but in general, sort of come to terms with uh, the country's past. Uh, they tend to not 
allow a discussion of those issues. And I, I think actually that's really unfortunate. Um, you know, there's been a lot of tra tragedy in China's recent history, but it ha it's not a it's not a sort of um, monotone slate. I mean, there have been achievements as well. Uh, this is there's there's the grist for a really interesting discussion. It's just that nobody allows the discussion to take place. I mean, there are things that they can be proud of. There are things that China can be proud of. And there are a lot of things that, that are, you know, represent great tra tragedy and disaster on a huge scale. And I think that actually that's the story of most countries. Why do they have to, why do they relate to this so differently? I'd like to hear that from them. All right. Those sound like good questions. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming by and we'll look forward to reading, to reading more of your, more of your features, especially from outlying areas. All right. Thank you, Josh. That was Howard French, Shanghai-based correspondent for the New York Times. I'm Josh Chin, and this concludes another edition of CDT ChinaCast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>